Hey everybody, it's me, Chris Denson. Uh, welcome to another installment of Innovation Crush. Um, unfortunately, I've, I'm kind of losing my voice, but TK, you can hear me, yeah? I can hear you just fine. All right, uh, don't try to out-sexy the voice. To, to, like, uh, yeah, you sound great, Chris. Um, so uh, so I've already kind of introduced you. Uh, TK Coleman, say hello. Hello, world. Great. <laughs> you saw how I brought it up in yeah, yeah, no, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, you know, but you just take a little bit of the bass out the, the chest and then we'll be good. Um, so give a little bit of, uh, I don't know, like the 90 second version of who TK Coleman is and, and what's in your world. Oh, man, the 90 second version of who I am. Well, uh, Isaac Morehouse, my co-founder with Praxis, we just recently watched the, uh, the movie They Live with uh, Rowdy Rod Piper. And there's a scene in that movie where he walks into a building and he says, I'm here to do two things, kick ass and chew bubble gum. And I'm all out of bubble gum. <laughs> so basically the brother was there to do one thing and he threw the bubble gum in just to make it sound pretty. So I'm here to do one thing and I threw the movie illustration in just to make it sound pretty. Um, my whole aim and agenda for being on this planet is reducible to the following statement. I'm here to give as many people as possible the permission and the power to be the predominant creative force in their own lives. I'm starting with myself by trying to convince myself of that as much as I can every day and by trying to help other people make the philosophical and practical adjustments in their lives so they can do the same thing. We live in a world where a lot of people feel like they're, to use Will Smith's term, at effect rather than at cause, where their happiness and their success is dictated by external conditions and circumstances, which is why half the country is always angry at election day, right? Because we feel like it's all up to someone else. And while there are external realities that affect us. I think the power of the individual to help create a freer society is vastly underrated. And I want to bring that back. So Justin Timberlake brought sexy back. I'm trying to bring individual power back, man. 92 seconds. That's <laughs> um, <laughs> pretty good. Um, so you, you started off talking about Isaac Morehouse and, and Praxis. Mm-hmm. Um, give us a little bit of a, you know, an overview on what that is, because I think it's, I think it's relatively fascinating in terms of, uh, you know, the, 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 the structure you guys put in, have put in place to, to kind of bring innovation to in a different and with a different spin on it. But obviously I'm botch, botching it. So you go ahead and take it's it. all good. <laughs> I had to bring the base back though for a second. <laughs> Absolutely. So I like the term I like to use to describe praxis is an academically infused apprenticeship because on one end we're bringing back the very best of traditional apprenticeships where we put an emphasis on real world learning, project based education and the value of mentorship while at the same time, we value this sort of engagement with abstract ideas that you can get from a traditional liberal arts curriculum. And we believe both of those things are necessary. So you see a lot of the debates in education today are about MOOCs and online learning versus real world learning and all of that kind of stuff. And I think these are all false dichotomies. You need all of these elements. You need to have conversations with experts, with intellectuals, with entrepreneurs, and you need to actually get out there and create real value in the marketplace for real customers and take the risk of accumulating some real failures and getting real feedback. So what Praxis does is we try to bring all of those things together. It's a 12-month program where we have over 200 different business partners all throughout the United States, and we pair people up with business partners based on their industry uh, of interest, based on their skill sets, their weaknesses, their goals, and so forth. They spend 30 hours a week for a year working with that business partner, and they learn about the nuts and bolts of, a, of that business. It's not like a traditional intern where they're just kind of being a gopher. You know, we're going to keep you busy. Go make copies or right. go get coffee. It's like, no. You're going to take a look at financial statements. You're going to understand why we hire people, why we fire people. You'll understand the the ins and outs of why our customers are satisfied with what we do. You're going to do projects to help add value to the company so that when you leave, you can point to things and say, hey, I put that there. You know what I mean? Or I'm responsible for making that happen. Or oops. Yeah, yeah. Or or oops. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Oops in a context where you have someone who has been in that industry for a while who can help coach you through it, right? So, so there's real failure, but then there's a little bit of safety there as well. And then in addition to that, every month they work with their Praxis advisor to go through professional development projects where they pick activities, their business partner picks activities, and the Praxis staff makes suggestions as well based on their own strengths and weaknesses and goals. And they do certain things every day for a month with the essential goal of becoming a, a better version of themselves. Right. Yeah. What I what I liked when we first chatted was the you know the fact that 
the ecosystem, at least these 200 plus businesses that you've tapped into, are not the shiny object companies, or not traditionally the shiny object companies that everybody focuses on. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I think we glorify the Googles and the, you know, the Facebooks of the world. Like, I want to get there. But there's so much more innovation and opportunity happening in that, you know, that bottom 98%, uh, you know. Um, can you talk a little bit about the types of companies that, you know, are, are part of the Praxis ecosystem. A- a- absolutely. Let me follow up on that comment really quickly. You know, w- one question I get a lot, uh, particularly from people who think about doing Praxis as an alternative is, is it really safe? Is it really wise to take a gap year and go work with an entrepreneur and, 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 and be away from the school system? Now, let's think about that within the context of things that are already familiar. Let's say you're interested in music and I say, hey, I'm good friends with Jay-Z. And uh, he told me that he'd be willing to have you travel with them and work with them, go to the studios with them for a year. If you can take a year off of school, would you be willing to do that? I mean, I think every parent would be encouraging their child to go do that, right? Like, go work with Jay-Z. Like, this would be an awesome opportunity. Right. He's been around. Or if I said, hey, Bill Gates is, uh, you know, looking for talented young people like yourself to just travel with them for a year. It's not going to have a specific job description, but you'll get a chance to have conversations, go to meetings and, and just kind of be around that space. Everyone would say, oh, my gosh, you got to go do that now. So we get this kind of thinking. But the problem is our, our vocabulary for artist or entrepreneur is pretty much limited to Jay-Z and Bill Gates. We only think about these things in terms of celebrities. But like you said, the overwhelming majority of artists and entrepreneurs who are the lifeblood of the economy are people that are not celebrities. You know, I mean, uh, I, I have friends who make six figures a year because they have YouTube channels or because they run local businesses and they're doing what they love. They're, they're generating the kind of income that most college students dream of making and will never end up making. Right. But you would never recognize these people when you walk through a shopping mall. So these are the kinds of companies that we work with. We work with a lot of smaller, mid-sized, dynamic businesses where you're not going to recognize the CEO from an episode of Shark Tank, you know, but it's a really cool 3D printing company in, in Austin or it's, it's a really cool marketing company in Charleston where you'll have the opportunity to work with people that you really want to be like. People that right. are loving what they do and that are generating a good income and creating immense value for customers. And you'll have the chance to be able to assume an important role that you really wouldn't get if you went into a larger bureaucratic firm where you have to prove yourself just to be able to do something that is an entry level. You know what I mean? Right. And how do like when you're working with the companies, how do you vet out, you know, how do you communicate the value of, you know, your practices participants? Right. Absolutely. That's a, that's a really good question. So thank you. Wh- I've, wh- I've been practicing. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So, so one of the value adds for the, the business partner is, when they get a Praxis participant, they're not getting someone that's just going to go to work, clock out, and go home and do whatever. When you are running a business, you may want your employees to constantly work on personal development, but at the end of the day, their lives are their lives and they get to do what they want to do. But when you hire a Praxis participant, you're getting someone that is part of an ongoing professional development program, someone that is committed to doing projects every month and with working with the Praxis advisor every week to become a better version of themselves. So one of the one of the boasts we make is that if you take someone from us, our job is to make sure the person you hired uh, in January is a much better employee by the time we get to February, much better by the time we get to June, much better by the time we get to right. August. So they're constantly working on specific things. And we're always updating the business partners about what we're working on with that participant and they're allowed to make feedback. So just recently, I updated, I updated a business partner about one of my participants, and he said, that's great. I like that. Keep working on it. But I also would like him to do some sales training. More specifically, I would like him to do some sales training with the materials from this particular company. That's what he wants. It's market-driven education. So we immediately created a professional development project oriented around that kind of sales training. So this isn't just getting an employee that's coming in looking to do their job, make their money and go home. This is someone that's looking at work as an education process. And they're always trying to figure out how can I hustle more in order to make your business better? Not how can I right. get your money for taking up space and breathing up your what air? What do these people want? Like what do, what do they want when they, when they open the doors of practice or they go to the website, like you, cause you talk about pairing the personal development with the professional development, like, you know, what's going to be my first entry point? Like what's going on with me, whether it's mm-hmm. internally or externally, like you know, w- when do people come and knock on your door? Sure. So 
most people want to live lives they feel passionate about. They want they don't want to just focus on doing what they're told. They don't want to just wake up every day and do something because it makes their parents proud or because it's going to generate a stable income. They they want to know what it means to feel truly alive. And one of the things that all of our Praxis applicants have in common is that burning desire to find meaningful work, that burning desire to do something that just fires them up and turns them on. Those are the people that we attract the most. We also attract a lot of people who went to the, you know, went to college or, you know, went through a a traditional education, but they just don't feel like they're being satisfied by that path. They don't feel like they're being sufficiently challenged and they want to take an educational approach that will actually challenge them to think and grow creatively. So those are some of the qualities that applicants have in common. Does that answer the question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. No, I think about, you know, almost everyone who's come on the show, you know, when you think about the idea of innovation is like, you are faced with that dilemma. It's like every movie you, you start off with a movie, you know, a, a anecdote, but it is like, you know, the resistance or coming up to some sort of internal external opposition that you need to do. Like you feel a burning desire to do something about, you may not know what to do about it, but you know, mm-hmm. like this isn't it right now. And, and, you know, is part of either your personal process and working with individuals or part of the praxis process, like also, yeah, we're going to place you in this environment, but we're also going to uncover your own sort of path of, of personal innovation. Absolutely. So one aspect of our curriculum that I, I am immensely proud of in the philosophy module is an entire section that's devoted to the philosophy of work. And I actually studied philosophy in, in college, and we never had a philosophy of work class or a philosophy of work major. But I think if most of us as long, you know, those of us who haven't won the the Powerball, those of us who, you know, don't have a trust fund already in place, most of us are going to have to work. And you buy your lottery ticket, by the way? I, I did not get a oh, lottery see? ticket, yeah. man. <laughs> Odds are against you. We, we, we could get into that later, though. I actually have a, a philosophy for why I don't buy lottery tickets, even though I don't condemn those who do. But since most of us are going to have to work to make a living, it's important that we be able to think critically about what we want that relationship to work to be. Praxis doesn't preach a specific philosophy like you need to care about money or you need to not care about money uh, or you need to do what you're passionate about for a living. Like you get to decide that, but we expose them not only to materials, but to questions and conversations and to people that are going to challenge them to think more about what they love, what they don't love and how much of a role they do and don't want those things to play, you know, in their career. So that that is something that we do a lot of. So I would say self-discovery and self-knowledge is a huge component of entrepreneurship because really creating value for others is just an extension of knowing who you are and right. knowing how to translate that to other people's needs and concerns. How um, frequently or uh, often do people realize that? Because I think a lot of, I mean, a lot mm. of us, like, you know, we know what we're good at or we know, or maybe we don't know, but we, you know, there's a calling, but we don't understand that there's also a personal growth that goes along with your entrepreneurial journey, your life journey, whatever. And it's all one holistic thing. How often do people actually know that, you know, when they come into a, a TK Coleman encounter? Oh, man, that's so interesting. You make me think about this. Uh, there's There's a scene in a Denzel Washington movie. I think it might have been. Maybe courage under fire. I don't know, but he. But there's this guy. Your movie who, library. I don't. Let's, let's go. Let's at least go two thousand. Right, right, right. I need to up, update update my movie. Well, there, there's a, a movie where uh, that is true. Where the, the guy there's a guy who's trying to insult him. He's a he's a racist guy, and he and he looks at Denzel's character and he says, "You look like an Ethiopian," you know. And I, I guess that that's what he thought you should say to a black person if you wanted to make them feel bad. And Denzel's character's response is, and you're ignorant enough to think that's an insult, you know, and it's just a powerful sting. You know, so there are two kinds of ignorance. There's the ignorance of not knowing and there's the ignorance of not knowing that you don't know. Right. right. And this guy had the latter kind. It's the most dangerous kind. It's why the philosopher Socrates, another old school reference, said, wisest is he who knows that he does not know. A lot of the people that are drawn to our program they already kind of know that about themselves because there's a certain level of discontentment they already have with the existing system or with what they were already doing or the path they were already on. And so they know that they need to know. And most most people come seeking us out because they want us to help them kind of illuminate illuminate that path and help them clarify what their preferences are and figure out if they can make a living doing something that's related to that. So 
What's the uh, what's the retention rate like after you know after somebody completes their year? Do they stay on board with the the company you've paired them with, or mm-hmm. is it um, you know, or is it like a, a departure? So as far as our goal is concerned, while I don't care about the retention rate, I want the offer rate to be one hundred percent. Meaning, I want every person who goes through the Praxis program to receive an offer from that business partner to stay on, because that that makes it clear to us that we've done our job at creating immense value for that partner, or at least helping them create immense value. So we want them to be so good that their business partners are crying when it's time for them to leave at the end of the program. So as far as the actual offer rate is concerned, more than 75% of our participants are getting that offer. Some of the business partners sign on and what they're really looking for is to fill a spot for 12 months and they, they don't have the room or the ability to make that offer. So it's not always an indication of failure. And I would say about half of our participants actually accept that offer. But many of them come into the program because they have their own entrepreneurial ideas right. or they, they have some you know, uh, primitive understanding of what they want to do with their lives. And they're just looking for this experience to help give them the courage or the knowledge they need to take that next step. So sometimes offers are made. And many times people don't accept those offers because they want to go on and start their own business or they already knew they wanted to go to grad right. school or something along those lines. Um, my my semi last practice question. Uh, what are the businesses expecting to get out of this? Right. You know, I think when when you identify like a different sort of talent pool. You want to get something out of it, right? And maybe that twelve months is what you want, but you know what? So, what are the businesses expecting? You know, they like what's the the value add or promise to them? Yeah. So, from a cost benefit analysis perspective, you want the cost to be cost efficient labor and the benefit to be a superior quality worker, the kind of worker you can only get by hiring someone that not only brings an existing set of skills but that is committed through this program to always developing those skills and adding new ones to their repertoire. So that would be the strongest benefit they give. They also get a chance to outsource accountability, communication, training, and personal development to the Praxis program as well. So about Praxis, no, I'm just kidding. Um, so obviously, I mean, you've been on this path of education and philosophy, you know, you're the first person I think who's quoted Socrates on the show. Uh, <laughs> and Denzel in the same, you know, in the same <laughs> story. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, what lesson do you, you know, because there's this theory that, you know, when you teach, you also learn, right? You're kind of repeating and re- revisiting lessons. What lesson do you encounter most for yourself? What do I learn most about myself in teaching? There's this Yolanda Adams song called uh, Before I Tell Them. And in and, and the lyrics of that song, she says, Before I tell them, please tell me. Before I give to them, please give to me. How can I give what I have not received? How can I show what I do not know before I tell them, please tell me? And that is the biggest lesson I learn in my teaching. I learned that as a teacher, I can never ask of my students what I myself am not willing to give. I can never challenge them to go beyond what I'm willing to challenge myself. That if I'm not constantly learning in my personal life, If I'm not constantly growing, pushing my weaknesses, systematically identifying my weaknesses, then I'm not going to be teaching from the center. I'm not going to be teaching from a place of depth. Anytime I allow myself to get to this point where I feel like, hey, I have arrived, you know, I've reached the pinnacle and it's now just my job to look down from the mountaintop and bestow my wisdom and experience on these people who are still learning. That's when I start to get dry and stale and uninteresting. You know, my philosophy is that if you want to be fascinating, you got to be fascinated. If you want to be engaging, you've got to be engaged. If you want to be interesting, you got to be interested, right? So my number one job isn't to get my students to learn something or get pumped about something or do something. My number one job is to always be pushing myself in my personal life to be engaging my curiosities and putting that above everything else. Isaac said to me one time, he said, the business is going to be fine. The most important thing is that we continue to work on ourselves. If we ever lose sight of that, then we have no hope to succeed in the business world. If we make sure that we're always focused on becoming better versions of ourselves, the rest will take care of itself because education is an extension of self self learning. Right. And with that, because I think, you know, we all have things that we face or overcome or don't overcome. Um, How do you deal with those things that are 
more difficult for you to overcome, whether it's, you know, for some, it may be procrastination. Some, it may be like, I'm not a closer, you know, like whatever that sort of weakness is, because there's always a balance between you take a weakness and you let it be a weakness and you try to fill that in with, you know, through the spirit of teamwork or like allowing someone else to take over in the area that you're weak. Like I hate numbers, right? Like, so when I'm thinking about business, I'm like, oh, you do the math, right? Um, but, and there's cases where I do have to like man up and like sit down and crunch through that stuff. So how do you deal with the, the things that you struggle with most? I would say basically three elements, uh, self-honesty, modesty, and accountability. Uh, self-honesty, a, a traditional, I mean, a, a, um, a tremendous amount of uh, problems that we have with things like overcoming procrastination or turning weaknesses into strengths or not letting our weaknesses destroy us is not fully being honest with ourselves and others about what we really want. We, we set ourselves up for failure when we say yes to things that we don't really believe in, when we make commitments that aren't really true to, to what we want. And I, I think much of what we call failure or weakness is simply a matter of people not being real with themselves about what they want to do for themselves or what they're into for themselves. And I think you can cut half of your problems out of the picture just by choosing to be more honest with yourself, even if that means you hurt people's feelings. I think the second thing, modesty, is being realistic in how much you can do. So one thing I like to do every month is I'm probably I, the most modest person I know. Just, uh, <laughs> I love that. Yeah. That reminds me of, I grew up in a church and I remember a guy <laughs> standing up and giving a testimony saying he wanted to thank God for how humble he was. He was like the most humble guy. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> the irony, you know, but it's, it feels good to be ambitious and to set huge goals. But I think it's important to ask yourself, what can I still accomplish on my worst day of the week? Because you're going to have a worst day of the week. So every month I do what I call these personal development projects where I identify one activity that I want to do in order to make myself better. And I have to do this every day, no matter how I feel, no matter what kind of mood I'm in. And when I pick an activity, I don't pick something based on what sounds awesome, like read 50 pages a day or like run five miles a day. I pick something based on what can I do on the worst day, because I'm, I'm going to have a day where everything goes wrong and I have a perfectly legitimate excuse to bail out. What can I do on that day? Well, on that day, I can run for five minutes. I can do 10 pushups. And that'll be the basis of my commitment, because once you start an activity, it's always easier to build momentum and go further than the, than the commitment. But if you make a commitment that's too big, it's easy to talk yourself out of it, forgive yourself for not doing it. And then once you don't show up. Once you miss a day, you kind of lose that momentum and it's right. easy to just kind of like get caught in this endless cycle of procrastination. So set an easier goal. Instead of trying to do something huge, just try to do something small every single day, which is why any musician will tell you, if you want to learn the piano, it's better that you just practice for 30 minutes a day, even though that's not glamorous, than to have a day where you practice for five hours, skip a day, a day right. you practice for 15 minutes and so forth. The last thing is accountability. And this is something that I stole from Tony Robbins. Tony Robbins says, if you got something you want to do, You've got at least one hater in your life. You've got at least one person who would love to see you fail. Go find that guy mm -hmm. and tell him exactly what you're going to do. do. Create some kind of pain point so that if you don't achieve that goal, you can fill it. So for me, I like to be public with my goals, like go on Facebook you know, or, or, or create a personal blog, announce to the world, this is what I'm going to do. Because if you just keep it to yourself and you have one of those, those days where you say, ah, I don't really feel like it, there's no real cost. But if you say, oh, man. I just announced to someone that right. I'm going to do this. I just got to make it happen. So when I, when I did my project of writing a blog every day, I announced that to the world. And I had people who were showing up to look at that blog. And I, I had Where several. Where you blog at? Where you blog at? Uh, <laughs> hold on. Let me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Don't put me on the spot, man. Like, hey, I want to follow up on you too, brother. Uh, so I, I blog at, at tkcoleman.com. I also blog at the Discover discoverpraxis.com blog. And you can also find my page on medium, which is where I do most of my writing now, uh, medium.com, uh, at TK Coleman. Uh, so I've had plenty of days where I have written a blog at like 1150 PM. And I don't even think it was that good, but I had to get it done because I knew that I was accountable to the public and I knew right. that I had to do something. And even though it wasn't good, there's something about the principle of showing up, 
no matter what, that builds self-confidence and self-discipline. So those would be my, my three elements, self-honesty, modesty, and accountability. I like when people post a picture and they're like, day three, fitness challenge. <laughs> and then like, uh, like two days later, it's like, it's just crickets on, right. on their face. Like, uh, which I always think is funny. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah you're still fit. Um, but <laughs> what, even, even with the accountability in place, you know, some people still falter, right? And then, uh, you know, I think uh, this is just me philosophizing a lot, trying to keep up with you. But, um, you know, it becomes a compounded issue, right? It's one, you've already announced it. Two, you failed. And then three, it's like, uh, now you have to deal with the, you know, not doing what you said you were going to do and not even accomplishing what you wanted to accomplish, right? So is there a remedy for that? Or is it just one of those, like, get back up on the horse? Like, is it, you know, um, or do you have a thought on it? Yeah, I, I do. So I think there are a couple of things. First, if you miss a day or if you fail, I don't think you should try to go back and make up for lost time. That's where a lot of people get burned. Day so. three again. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> so if your goal is to do like 10 pushups every day and, and you miss the first 10 days, I don't think you should try to do a 100 pushups on day 11 just to kind of make up, you know, so it's really important that you just start where you were and move forward from there. Secondly, I think there's another dimension to accountability, and, and I didn't talk about this. Accountability isn't just about creating pain points or announcing to other people that in public that you're going to do this, but it's also about involving someone in your life that can kind of give you that constructive feedback and that coaching element that you need. And, and this is one of the value adds of, to bring up practice again, the practice program, because we provide that life coaching, that job coaching, that creativity coaching element. You need people to tell you the things that you need to hear about your progress. If if you keep failing, that might be an indicator that at the level of of modesty, you're not setting goals that are modest enough. I mean, maybe you should set a goal that's less ambitious, that's less glamorous, and start with something smaller. Because clearly, if it were realistic for you, given your level of motivation and your lifestyle, you would not be failing. But the fact that you are means that at one of these other two areas, either you're not being honest with yourself about what you really want, or you're trying to do too much and maybe you should work up to that place. And having, having someone who's not only accountable to saying, hey, you should have did this, but who's, but who's also accountable for giving you constructive feedback can help with that as well. Right. So make it a three-day challenge, then you then you have one. <laughs> Day three, done. <laughs> I, I told you I would accomplish my goal. Um, you talked a lot about like your uh, blog writing. You had one recently that was, you know, I think it was five tips for parents um, who want to raise entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about some of those, you know, some of those like points of interest that, because I'm a parent, you know, um, I have a ton of 70, 80, 90-year-old people who listen to this. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, but but no, but I do want to get a sense of um, what are some of those things that you've identified as, you know, future generations of innovators come up in at least the in the world that we live in now. Mm-hmm. Right. So one of the elements I talked about in that blog was the value of soft skills and, you know, soft skills are contrasted with hard skills in that hard skills are usually like easily quantifiable, measurable technical abilities, right? Like the ability to code would be a hard skill. You could even say what a mechanic does, the ability to to change a flat tire, change an engine. These are hard skills. And usually when people approach education, they, they tend to overvalue hard skills. They tend to look at that as the golden ticket, right? Like what's the thing I can do that's going to allow me to make $60,000 a year coming right out, of the co- right out of college? And we focus exclusively on that. Soft skills are those things that are not easily measurable, but that are essential for success, essential for sustaining anything that is of value. It can be something like your ability to relate to a person, your ability to get along with coworkers, your ability to navigate office politics, uh, the ability that you have to sell yourself. Uh, This world is filled with people that are really talented, really intelligent, but they don't know how to look at themselves as a personal brand and get doors open for them. So one of the things I talk about in this article is that there is no hard skill so valuable that it can't be under, undermined by a lack of soft skills. So in, in the business that I work in, where I'm constantly communicating with business partners about what they need from the students I'm sending to the program, whenever there's a problem, it is never because of a lack of hard skills. Businesses are quite confident in their ability to make the investments necessary to bring employees up to speed when it comes to hard skills. I have never once had anyone complain to me, hey, this person isn't fast enough at this. This person isn't smart enough at learning this new skill. Whenever there's a problem, 
it's always something in the arena of social intelligence or emotional intelligence. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) And, And the unfortunate thing about this is that a lot of young people aren't told the truth about soft skills because in the world we live in, if you lack soft skills and people think you are that, they don't feel the need necessarily to give you constructive feedback. They just stop talking to you. Right. You know, we, we've all had friends who've said things like, I'm never going back there again. I'm never giving them my business again. Mm-hmm. Or, I'm never dealing with that person again. And it's like, well, well why? Well, uh, a lack of punctuality or, you know, a lack of sensitivity. Well, are you going to tell them? No, because people don't want to get into arguments. People don't want to, you know, uh, create any controversy and whatnot. So a lot of people who lack soft skills aren't being told that they don't have them. And in conventional education, they aren't really being placed in the context where they have to deal with those sorts of things because the kinds of soft skills you need to get through college are in many ways very different from the kind of soft skills you need well, when, when your network isn't entirely horizontal in, in a work environment. Well, also like life experience skills, right? Which is, mm-hmm. you know, like I said, it's, it's, a, and it's hard to like, you know, home ec didn't do it right you know, it was like that was domestic living and and there were you know there's a lot of like talk around like what kinds of things should we introduce to the educational system um those soft skills are they'll seem a little bit more parental like in the terms of in terms of your blog like a little bit more parentally focused right mm-hmm. um oh you had an argument with such and such well and this is kind of what i do with my my daughter right i go like you're going to encounter other, you know, Jennifer's, you know, for lack of saying the girl's name. Um, but, you know, you're going to encounter them all your life. So this is you, you need to figure out how to deal with it now. Right. Who are you going to be in that situation? Um, so uh, but then there on the on the flip side, you talk about something that may be a little bit more of a hard skill, but like finance. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, can you just divulge on that a little bit more on the on the financial side? Because you also came up in, on the financial side of things. I, yeah, I did. My, my first job after college, um, after doing a real estate investment apprenticeship with my father was as a financial advisor at American Express. And I'm I'm really passionate about financial literacy. Actually, the book that got Can me. Can you tell into him to stop garnishing my wages? <laughs> no, <I'm just> <laughs> you got you pick up your phone. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I get nothing from this podcast. So. <laughs> Yeah, man. So, you know, like the book that got me into it, because I didn't major in finance at college. Um, I, I was I was in my I was at my parents place and my brother had a book on his desk called Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki. Amazing book. Yeah. I, I picked that book up. I was like, what is this? And once I started reading each page compelled me to turn to the next one. And I was really blown away when when he talked about, you know, his concept of assets, not as things that you own, but as revenue generating activities. And he talked about a lot of the difference, revenue generating um, possessions rather. Uh, And, and, you know, the things that he had to say about the difference between the way the poor and middle class think about wealth and from the rich, it really blew my mind and it it created this hunger to just read more and more about it. So I, I started to read everything I could get my hands on. And that led to this path that put me on track to go into finance. What I, what I talk about in the article, teaching financial literacy to your children, the most important thing you can teach them about money is that money isn't about money. When you, when, you, when you step back from things like dollar bills and coins, what is money really all about? Money is really, in its essence, a symbolic representation of our capacity to create value for human beings. If, if you go back to the days before we had dollar bills and all these different forms of currency, we, we live by the barter system, right, where different people own different things based on whatever they came into this earth with or what was given to them. And if you wanted something that someone else had, you had to figure out a way, if you weren't going to use force, to use creativity, to incentivize that person to give you what they had or to cooperate with you. So if you've got a basket of lemons and I've got a basket of apples and I want some of those lemons. I mean, I can come to you and I can say, hey, man, can I have a couple of lemons? You know, and I can hope for a little charity. But if I can't get that, I've got to take a look at what I have. And I, I've got to say, well, I've got some apples. Um, you know, I can I can tap dance. I've got a couple of bottles of water. All right. I'll tell you what, bro. If I give you a bottle of water, two apples and do this tap dance routine for you, you know, for you and your family tonight at 730 at your house. Will you give me a couple this of lemons? This is a real scenario, by the way. This is a real scenario. This, 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 this okay. is real. Okay, cool. I just, just wanted to double check. Like, this is this is an actual offer being made live to you right now. And I'm hoping I'll you say yes. It. First of all, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll see you at 730. You got to go buy the lemons so you can right. make this deal happen. So I, I, would, I would offer you those things. And then, you, you know, you would say, OK, yeah, if that's desirable. And then I would get what I want. 
Now, wh- where does money come in, in in the way we think about it today? Well, money just takes that same thing and it makes the process neater. Because if you went to a grocery store on a barter system, everything would be really convoluted, right? You, you would look at a a gallon of milk, and instead of there being a price like a dollar ninety nine or what have you, it would be something like I will give you this gallon of milk in exchange for uh, the DVD collection to Breaking Bad, uh, teaching my right. son math, uh, a new pair of Air Jordans. It's called Craigslist, by the way. <laughs> right? <is> like... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. It'd be Craigslist. That's what a grocery well, store date would be like. For iPhone. <laughs> a day for iPhone. A day for. So money, money simplifies that and it allows us to all use the same thing. But the disadvantage of thinking about money in terms of dollar bills, coins or any other form of currency is that we lose sight of the fact that making money is simply a reward for creating value and getting money is just a part of this age old process of figuring out what are my talents? What are my abilities? What do I have and how can I convert that to something that is meaningful for another person. So when a lot of parents teach their children financial literacy, where they bore their children to death or where they fail is they focus too much on things like financial jargon. I'm going to teach my kid what an asset is and what a liability is. I'm going to teach my kid why credit matters. And that's all objectively important from the Mm -hmm. vantage point of a parent, but kids aren't interested in that. However, kids are doing things every day that signal to you that they are interested in what the essence of money is all about. Kids are interested in incentivizing other people to cooperate with them all the time. Kids are interested in fulfilling their desires all the time. You can see them doing things like, I'll give you you know, three marbles for a piece of candy, or hey, if you do this with me, I'll do this, you know, do that with you. And, and if you can use those moments as teaching opportunities to show them, all right, this is what life is all about. We don't have to talk about mm-hmm. money. We have to, it's, it's simply a conversation about, how to get what you want by helping other people get what they want. And right. if you can become a genius at that, then the money will come. How do we, because uh, I know you had some other points in that particular blog, but how do we remain childlike? Right. How, that's, that's yeah. the trick, right? Like as yeah. you get older, as you know, especially when it comes to imagination and innovation and discovery and like all these things that you've talked about, you know, it does take a little bit of, like you said, uh, you have to be fascinating. You have to be fascinated, right? You have to have this childlike wonder. How do you, you know, exhibit that or retain that or get it back as you get older? You know, it's funny because my, my wife is both a teacher and a nanny and she works with children all the time. And, you know, I get a chance to look at her lesson plans and learning exercises a lot. And we have different conversations about education. Just last night, actually, she gave me this uh, exercise that she that she is doing with one of the girls that she works with. And I'm going to give it to you and see what you think. The exercise is which of the following words doesn't rhyme with the other two? Take. Tape. Ape. Take. Take. Now, here's my question. Do, do you believe that answer you just gave me? Because it, it is rhyme. the right answer. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm, if I were actually to spit a hot verse right now, I would say they all rhymed. I, I would put those in all in the freestyle. Now, that's interesting, though, because it's almost like you have like two two sides of your brain working right now. Of course, this is metaphorical for all the scientists listening. There's no side of the brain that corresponds to that. Um, so there, there was a part of you that knew what the right answer was, meaning that you, you turned on your school mindset, right? And you knew, okay, if a teacher were asking me that question, what would I need to say to them to convince them that I know what I'm talking about, right? right? And you knew what that answer was. You knew that the answer was take. You knew that for whatever reason, that's what I wanted you to, to hear you say. But then there was another part of your brain that said, okay, but in terms of real world application, what would work? And that part of your brain said all three. Because, you know, in your mind, you you heard like Eminem or something saying, you know, right. um, I took the tape, wrapped it around the face of an ape and the ape said, that's all I can take, you know. And you were like, hey, that works for me. Because in the real world, when you when you actually use things, you operate according to a different standard than when you're trying to please an authority figure. So here's where I think we lose our sense of childlike wonder and imagination. When our process of education is entirely oriented around Thinking about knowledge and the right answer in terms of what it takes to avoid getting in trouble with an authority figure, that is the beginning of the death of the imagination. The way to keep it alive is by encouraging children 
to explore their curiosity, to have enough faith in reality to, to say, hey, what do you want to do? Go do that. And to trust the important things they need to learn, they will learn by doing right. that. So something like teamwork, for instance, you don't learn teamwork in the abstract by hearing someone tell you how important it is, give you a definition of it and tell you why you need to know it. You learn it by playing on the soccer team. You learn it by playing tag with the kids. You know, so a lot of the things we think are irresponsible, that we're afraid to have kids do. Oh, I can't let Johnny play video games or I can't let him play basketball for several hours. But wait a minute. He's motivated to play video video games. He's motivated to play basketball. So he's going to pay attention to whatever he learns during that time. And that's going to take him much further in life than anything you force him to learn because you think it's important. Because once he's doing that, he's just going to do that to avoid getting in right. trouble. There are possibilities born out of love that never arise out of duty. It's kind of like when you're talking to a girl, man. When you like a girl, you, you start writing songs and expressing yourself creatively and all these amazing possibilities come out. But if you were talking to a girl because your mom said, I want you to take Sandy out on a date. Mom, I don't want to do that. Well, she, I feel sorry for her. Take Sandy out on a date. Well, you do that. Right. You're just going to do the bare minimum. So that mom is happy and you can say, here, mom, you can't punish me. I did what you told me to do. But you're not going to write any songs for Sandy. <laughs> Creativity uh, doesn't come from doing I might duty. write a song. It might not be the best song. <laughs> right. Uh, there's, uh, I could go in a whole other direction with that. But um, how do you retain that, right? Like mm -hmm. that spirit, especially in a group environment or a workplace. And, you know, because we butt up against this a lot, right? If you work for an agency or you're responsible for creativity or something, Part of you wants to be the freewheeling thinker and like do whatever your heart's content. And then the other part is like, I do need to please this individual or these, this group of individuals, you know, is it a balance between the person in authority and the person delivering the product and they both have to have that understanding, you know, or is it the responsibility fall more on one or the other, or am I like way off base in terms of, you know, how do you retain that and um, that spirit of childlike creativity in a, in a work environment? Absolutely. So first, I, I would say that I don't consider creativity to be uh, the freedom to do whatever you want, when you want it, how you want it, based on the emotion you feel in the moment. I don't associate creativity with inspiration-fueled action. In fact, I think most of the best artists are people that have learned how to effectively manifest results in the absence of inspiration, most of the great writers will tell you that it's the ability to create on demand, the ability to produce effects, even when you don't feel like doing it. I'm, I'm sure that as much as you love what you do, every single aspect of it is not enjoyable and inspiration can only take you so far. So creativity is more about an underlying commitment to bringing forth the possibilities that you love in spite of the obstacles that are bound to arise on the way. Because no matter what it is you love, there are aspects to everything that are just unpleasant and inconvenient. And creativity is learning how to navigate that, right? right. So that, that would be the first thing I would say about creativity. But how to, so how to sustain that in the world, in a world where we often find ourselves kind of having to compromise in order to be in the relationships we are in, whether that's a marriage or that of being a parent or, or having a job, I, I would say the the way that you do that is you 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 look at every moment as you know what Ram Das calls sadhana, uh, a way to self knowledge. You look at every problem as a creative challenge that is there to teach you how to develop that skill to transcend obstacles, how to develop that skill to manifest what you want in any set of conditions. I think about the Jay-Z lyric, update analogy, baby. Jay-Z said, I got a million ways to get it, right? I know, and that ain't even the most recent Jay-Z okay. lyric, you know, but, it's, it, but it's within the decade. Right, no, yeah. right. <laughs> better. It's better. So Jay-Z said, I had a million ways to get it. Context inappropriate, I know, but he, he was saying something there. He was saying, if you stop me from getting what I want one way, I can go about it another way. Why? Because I'm attached to the destination, not the vehicle, right? And that's the essence of creativity, being attached to the result, to the destination, not to a particular expectation I had of how I was going to get there. So that's the skill we have to teach our children, to teach our young people. And the way that we teach, that, teach them that is by early on giving them the opportunity to make choices, giving them the opportunity to make decisions so that they can learn to use those skills early on. So when they find themselves in a world where they're pushed and pulled by these obstacles and external forces, they'll be able to kick those lessons into play, just right. like how we have to do in everyday life. Is, is that touching on what you asked me? I don't know. 
No, I'm just kidding. No, I'm just, no. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about, brother. I'm like Damon Wayans on uh, the episode of Living Color where he's the guy in jail. See, just talking. You, you, I, I, I went back. I went back. Like let, let's fast forward. Let's fast forward. Just name a modern TV show and I promise to use that. No, as it's example. okay. Yeah, I, I don't think your Netflix. We got, we'll get you a subscription to Netflix. Um, now I forgot what I was going to say. Um, so there's a line in your bio uh, that the, the, the kind of casual version of it first and foremost i love ideas um what does that mean because it's a it's a it's a you know don't we all you know there's a there's a speaking of references there was a comedian who's like you know dating profiles like i love to laugh it's like who who where are these people who don't love to laugh right, right? like right. Well, show me show me those people but you know how does that manifest in your day-to-day right like you know when you say i, I love ideas first and foremost how does that manifest in you know in the tk coleman world yeah, so you know the tagline for my blog used to be "Philosophy is my psychedelic, ideas are my intoxication." And so when when I say I love ideas, I mean something along the lines of I think that the experience of thinking for the sake of thinking is an ecstatic experience, and it can produce a high that is just as amazing as any other high that we can seek. Uh, for me, I like playing around with concepts in order to explore the possibilities that emerge by adopting new ways of seeing things. In fact, I think most of what we call problems, most of what we call impossibilities are the result of being stuck in, stuck in a particular focal setting, stuck in a particular vantage point. And if we can adjust that focal setting, if we can get out of that vantage point, we can create a new reality, so to speak. We can at least create a new experience of reality to be more precise. So how does that show up for me in my everyday life? I'm constantly engaging other people's ideas. I watched an interview on Inside the Actor Studio one time where uh, Lawrence Fishburne- Was this recently? Uh, I watched it recently, but <laughs> okay, the, the, the date good. of it we'll might be there. old. <laughs> we'll start right there. And, and, and the actor, Lawrence Fishburne, was talking about the importance of artists- learning how to maintain their ability to be inspired by other people's work, right? Now, in the celebrity-driven age we live in, if you're somebody that has a personal brand or you're a thought leader or you're promoting your work out there in that space, it's easy to become the kind of person who is only impressed by the stuff that you're doing, right? Hey, hey, world, here's the latest blog that I wrote. Hey, world, here's the latest interview I was on. Hey, world, here's the latest thing I think about this. And one thing I try to do is always maintain my childlike desire to be like other people, my childlike desire to be impressed by other people, you know? So when, you know, I read other bloggers, I listen to other people's podcasts and I'm always consuming other ideas so that I can be pulled out of the limitations of my own thinking and my own experiences, just so I can engage fresh perspectives, you know? So that's kind of how it shows up in my life. And for me, uh, ideas are, are my closest friends. I know a lot of wonderful people and I have no shortage of people who love me and support me and are, and are there for me. But ideas are always my closest friends because even when a friend helps me see through a problem, it's because they're able to introduce me to a new idea I've never met. What do you do? Because I, I, like I have idea vomit, right? Like, And I'm like, ooh, what if we reinvented this? Like, you know, I could have 12 things on a whiteboard in an hour. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> but I can't do all 12 of those things. Right. So, you know, when you are in the business of ideas, you know, how, what's your, do you have a filtering process by which you go like, okay, like this is the thing I'm going to focus on now. Or, you know, it, it, what is there a process that you have that you've incorporated? Yeah. So I actually make time for using ideas and I make time for playing with ideas without the pressure of having to come up with anything practical. Because I, I think the paradox of being practical is that, you're you're limited in your ability to be practical if you're never willing to do something that's impractical, right? Because play is one of the greatest sources of self-discovery. You cannot create if you don't play. And you can't truly play if you're forcing the experience to, you know, translate into something that can make you more money or get you a raise or something along those lines. So I, I spend time every week where I just get to play around with ideas and nothing has to come of it. I can have a hundred ideas on my whiteboard and and that's it. And when that time is over, that's over. And when I go back to work, I I go back to implementing the ideas that I already know how to use. And when the stuff that I interact with during my playtime is ready to be used, it will come about 
as the result of a process of internalization. You know what I mean? Like when you play with certain ideas long enough, they become a part of you and, and they begin to speak to you more right. clearly and become, you know, more detailed. And then you know when to use them. So I don't think you have to force that part. And I think it's essential to not force it. Uh, how do you keep the passion for your idea once you, you know, cause you will grab one of those things off the whiteboard and be like, I'm going to develop this. Right. And it, then, yeah. and then that becomes less like the fun part and the, like the work part. Right. Uh, yeah. or is it one in the same or how do you, re- you know, how do you keep the spirit of fun in the development process? Cause the development process can be a very ugly <laughs> thing. Absolutely. I, I think, I think you just have to schedule in the fun. So for me with, with the way I do my practice work day, for instance, is I have four hours of structured time where every day there are certain things I have to do for the sake of the company that just have to get done. Doesn't matter if they're fun, I wanna do them, doesn't matter if I'm sick, I just gotta do these things. The rest of my day, however, consists of unstructured time. I only do things based on inspiration and impulse. What do I feel like doing? And I think it's essential to have both. If you're not, if, if you don't have any work that you challenge yourself to do regardless of how you feel, you become addicted to emotion. You become dependent on feeling and you fail to become one of those creators who can create on demand and go beyond inspiration. At the same time, if that's what all your work is like, then you become trapped in this obligatory paradigm where you no longer can draw from that sense of childlike play. So I, I just think you have to schedule both of them in. At least that's what I do and that works for me. What was uh, Chicago like? When I visited over the holidays, yeah, well, what was just, it like you, growing did up? Did you grow up there? I grew up in yeah, Chicago. Yeah. Well, yeah. What, what was that like? You know, and and um, I mean, I grew up in Detroit, so like you know, I I, I relate. Yes. But uh, you know, and and what have you kept with you? You know, from your Midwestern roots and upbringing that you know is kind of manifest today. Yeah, man. Oh man. So Chicago is home, man. So you know, I I grew up in in the Michael Jordan era, so I, I had a chance to touch Michael Jordan's arm once at a basketball camp. I had a chance to see the Chicago Bulls play. I had a chance to witness the 72 win season. And I, I had a chance to to uh, go through the, the Chicago Bears Super Bowl and experience the, the love and the camaraderie of the entire city where you could just walk down the street and you can point to any person, no matter what their demographic, and they would point back to you because we have Michael Jordan in common. We have Walter Payton in common, man. Uh, Chicago is all love. I grew up eating deep dish pizzas, you know, and and just, you know, playing basketball and doing all of the wonderful things that the city is known for. What do I carry with me from Chi-Town? Well, first of all, I, I never say I'm from any other place than Chi-Town. I've been living in L.A. for seven years. I will never, under any condition whatsoever, say I'm from Los Angeles. And that's no hate on LA. I'm just from Chicago. I will always be from Chicago. I live in Los Angeles. Even if I live here for the rest of my life, I'm from Chicago to the day I die. Um, I I take Michael Jordan with me, honestly, um, because I believe that he gave that whole city a reason to fly. I believe he gave that whole city a reason to believe that the impossible was possible from every record that he broke from every gravity defying dunk from being the first player to lead a team to 70 wins from retiring the first time coming back, people saying that he couldn't do it again and doing it again. He gave us all a reason to believe that we were not very far from greatness in our own lives. And, you know, one, one, one of my, one of my secrets and I'm going to tell it on the air, I'm going to tell it on the air. One of my secrets is that at least every other night, man, I stay up to two o'clock in the morning watching old Bulls and Knicks playoff series, <laughs> draw, drawing spiritual strength, man, for the challenges that I'm going through. Nice. <laughs> no wonder you don't have time for, for updated <laughs> movies. Exactly. You're watching old, uh, <laughs> old basketball footage. <laughs> um, so the show is called Innovation Crush. Um, uh, what have you seen out in the world that you're particularly crushing on right now? That I'm particularly crushing on? Like, w- w- oh, okay, I got you. I got you. I got you. Like, girl, I'm crushing on you. Don't. Don't do it. <laughs> I was going to ask you to sing the Yolanda Adams verse. And I was like, now you've already, you've ruined that surprise. <laughs> right, right, right. I've given you ample reason to not go there. <laughs> what do I see what's going on in the world that that I'm crushing on right now? So, I think when it comes to um, societal change, we tend to vastly overstate the value of technological invention, and we tend to vastly understate the value of technological innovation. I think what's really cool is seeing the different ways human beings are lending creative application of existing technologies to solving old problems in ways that are completely unrelated to why that technology was produced. So as an example, you take 
the contemporary political discussions that are happening right now about police brutality, right? And without getting into a polemic discussion about what the solution ought to be or which side of the debate is right, there is a discussion taking place on this topic that has never taken place in history in the way that it's happening now. And no matter how anyone feels about this discussion, it's not going away. And it's placing an intense demand on politicians to acknowledge what they could have ignored before. And all of this is happening. Why? Because of the cell phone camera. Like nobody created the cell phone camera because they wanted to do something about police, police brutality or because they wanted to help solve crime. Right. But yet you have these creative applications of technology, much of which occurs through spontaneous order that leads to um, identifying criminals that we couldn't identify before, identifying abuses of authority that we couldn't identify before, and bringing things to the forefront of national discussion that 10, 15, 20 years ago, we would have never been talking about, we would have never believed were happening, we would have never known existed. And, and I think changes like that are really cool because I, I happen to believe that I happen to believe in in entrepreneurship as a theory of social change, meaning that when when we not only create new things but use existing things creatively in order to add value to people's lives, we we produce these positive externalities, so to speak. We we produce all of these unintended awesome benefits that result in people having greater freedom, even though we didn't produce the thing for that purpose. Right. It, it, it's funny real quick because I heard Steve Jobs before he died, he mentioned that um, although he made a lot of money, the work that he did didn't really make the world a better place. And there was the mother, a, a mother of a son who was blind, who actually wrote an article or wrote a post refuting him saying, I'm sorry, Steve Jobs, you may not have felt so good about your own work, but you were wrong because let me tell you about how it changed my son's life. Those are the kinds of things right. I'm crushing on right now. You know, when people do things for self-interest and then it just becomes charity through spontaneous order. Well, I mean, it's, you know, this also goes into like just kind of following your gut, right? Like, you know, you have that inclination or that, that itch to do something, you know, you, like you don't know what the domino effect is going to be. Like, you know, I manage a team of really highly functioning, you know, creative marketers. And, you know, a lot of it is like, our ideas are so blue sky in most cases. I'm, like I always guesstimate our ratios, like one out of every 50 things gets made the way we, you know, and, and that can be disheartening when you're in the business of ideas. But what happens is, there's a domino effect. The fact that I told a client about, hey, there's a technology that does this, or there's a cultural movement that this is happening mm -hmm. that you can tap into. The effect may not happen immediately in that room and like see the you know light of day in the way that we thought it would. But it's going to be like that person's going to, oh, we had this one idea. We we're going to do this. And then, it, you know, through some uh, telephone game, it happens a year later in, in some other corner of the world. You're like, OK, cool. You know, but it's that yeah. that idea of being inspired by by the moment. So I like I, I think that's a great perspective on um, on just, you know, the why we do what we do and, you know, just kind of like sticking to your gut um, <clears throat> to blow your mind. Sorry. But to blow your mind a little bit, uh, somebody else on the show told me that 2005 was the year that the iPhone came out and the year that Facebook launched. And it's like... That's crazy to think about. Right, right. Yeah. Exactly. Because so, then it exists forever? Exactly. So like everything you just said, like that was like a world changing year in terms of how we interact with the world, right? The internet was there and like you could you know sell your goods and all that stuff. Um, as we close, uh, complete this phrase for me. Innovation to me is doing the things we've always done in a way that they've never been done. I like it. Yeah. All right. Uh, so you're not going to sing the Yolanda Adams? You can. Nah, man. You don't okay. want me to. I, 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 I gave you a, uh, an Eminem. Right? No, no. Yeah, that was good. It was, and that was almost you almost channeled the real Eminem. Um, so yeah, uh, you've already plugged yourself, but do it again, just for for the sake. Where can people find you on the interwebs and on the on the on the lines and their mobile phones on the, on the computers and. Yes. Uh, uh, you, you can find me on my personal blog, tkcoleman.com. You can find more about my company, Praxis, at discoverpraxis.com. Why give the a, name Praxis, by the way? Why the name Praxis? Because we're all about embodying 
knowledge through action. And well, that's what it means. I thought it was a guy who couldn't say practice. And like, <laughs> you thought it was a, uh, let's go to practice. Like, uh, it was actually inspired by Alan Iverson's interview. <laughs> right, we talk about practice. <laughs> man, but that was also longer than 10 years ago. Get me off the air, <laughs> man. Get me off the air. Well, you almost, cause there's a song called white Iverson and the guy is like the whole song is a, is a Alan Iverson metaphor. That's what I was truly quoting. Sure. So <laughs> no, you were about to say something else about discover practice. Um, but maybe not. All right. Yeah. Anything else? Any parting words? Hey, man, my favorite quote, I'll share it with the audience. You probably all heard it before. Howard Thurman, ask not yourself what the world needs, but rather what makes you come alive, for that is what the world needs. People who have come alive. If you want to do something to change the world, do something that turns you on and fires you up and uh, let the positive externalities flow. (laughs) Thank you. That was awesome. Um, everyone this has been another installment of Innovation Crush and we will talk to you next time